Hello! You're listening to Strange New Worlds, a science and Star Trek podcast. I'm Mike Wong, your host, and today I'm joined by Dr. James T. Keene, Cecilia Sanders, Shreyas Visapagrada, and Elise Cutts to recap the science and Star Trek in Season 1 of Star Trek Discovery. The best part about Star Trek is the people it brings together. And one of the most amazing storylines for me over the course of Discovery's first season was seeing my friend Shreyas grow into the fandom having seen no other Star Trek before. If you go all the way back to episode 15 of Strange New Worlds, you'll hear how he was immediately hooked by the characters in the pilot. And now, he and my other guests get to offer their thoughts on where all of those beloved characters ended up at the end of season one. I've got my Tribble here. This is Pebble. Say oh, hi to Pebble. Oh my goodness. Hi, Pebble. The best. Pebble ran out of batteries, so Pebble can't coo or scream at you if you're a Klingon. I'm delighted that Pebble ever cooed and that there were batteries that could make that happen. Yeah. adorable. So I have Pebble here today because I was really sad that Lorca's Tribble didn't play a larger role in (laughs) Star Trek Discovery. So as we've established on this podcast by now, I really love all of the Star Trek animals including the tardigrade and tribbles in general. Lorca had a tribble that appeared in episode three and it was cooing in the background. And then when that theory about Tyler possibly being Voke came out, I was like, oh, I know how he's going to get outed. He's going to walk into the ready room and the tribble's going to go haywire. But that never happened. (laughs) So I was a little bit disappointed by that because I wanted the tribble to do something other than just sit there and then disappear and never be seen again. I think you're lucky we didn't see Cordell vaporize the tribble. Yeah. (laughs) That's so true. I was just thinking of like, she probably would have like destroyed it. (laughs) Yeah, just like she vaporized that. uh, Fortune cookies. Yes. He was like always such a weirdo. Lorca? Yeah. Well, I think we should probably introduce ourselves because we have some voices on this podcast who we haven't heard from in a while. So let's just go ahead and remind the audience who you are and what you do. Sure, yeah. I'm Cecilia Sanders. I'm a second year, rapidly approaching third year, graduate student here at Caltech in the Division of Planetary Sciences and Geosciences. I sort of sit at the nexus of planetary science and biology because I'm interested in how life started and how it's shaped our world around itself and how it might have shaped other worlds and how do we figure that out. Cool. Uh, I'm Shreyas Vesapregada. I am a first year in the planetary sciences program at Caltech. And what do I do? I like thinking about interesting problems related to exoplanets and how they form and maybe even the chemistry of their formation and things like that. Not super defined yet, but I guess I will have to change over the next few months, so we'll see. You've got a few years. <laughs> I'm James Keene. I'm a postdoctoral fellow here at Caltech in the planetary science department. I study geophysics of pretty much everything, icy satellites, asteroids, the moon, so on and so forth. And we'll be joined in just a bit by Elise Cutts, the co-host for this podcast. We'll beam her in eventually when she's done with her midterm. So, yeah, 
the last two episodes of Star Trek Discovery were quite something. And I have brought with me a few science questions to ask you all, just to make this podcast a little bit sciencey before we dive into the Star Trek real hardcore. So I want to start with James. Right after the second to last episode, get this email from James Keene, click it, and there's this graph that he came up with. Basically, this was a little bit of quick math that James did about geosynchronous orbits. Basically, in this second to last episode of Star Trek Discovery, they go into orbit around this moon, which is a lifeless moon, and then they terraform it to make it a moon full of mycelia so that they can harvest mycelia and run the spore drive on the Discovery. And Admiral Cornwell basically orders the Helms Detmer Detmer to go into a geosynchronous orbit. And then Detmer says, we're now in a geosynchronous orbit 800 kilometers above the dead moon's surface. And, and so James was like, 800 kilometers, that's really close to the actual surface of the planet. And actually did some math and produced this wonderful chart. All right, so a, a, a chart that has the planet's radius in kilometers on the x-axis and the planet's spin period in hours on the y-axis, a bunch of different points relating to different planetary bodies in our solar system, and then curves that run through these bodies. All right, so James, why don't you walk us through what a geosynchronous orbit actually means and then what this graph shows us about geosynchronous orbits. Sure, so geosynchronous orbit or geostationary orbit, sort of similar, is an orbit around a planet where the spacecraft or satellite that's orbiting the planet will go around the planet in the same time it takes for the planet to spin. So for Earth, that means a geosynchronous satellite would be in an orbit that it goes around the Earth once every 24 hours. And what's nice about that orbit is since it's orbiting at the same rate as the Earth spins, it stays in roughly the same point above the Earth's surface. So you could have a geostationary satellite above North America, and it would stay fixed in the sky for a very, very long time. And so they're useful for communications. Um, actually, Arthur C. Clarke is one of the people who really pushed for the idea of geostationary satellites as communication tools before we had satellites. But on Earth, geostationary satellites are really high up. I think the altitude for a geostationary satellite is like 40,000 kilometers or so. It's very far away from the Earth. And so when Detmer says that they're only 800 kilometers above the surface of the planet, or moon, or whatever this terraformed thing is. That's really small. Or This moon is tiny, basically, was my intuition. And I was really curious, and on one of these days where I was doing nothing but emails, I figured I needed to do a little bit of science, and so why not do some Star Trek science? Yes, all about that Star Trek <laughs> science. So the, the altitude at which something is geostationary is set by the planet's spin, of course, so you need to know how quickly you go around the planet, so that way you can match that spin. And it's also set by the planet's mass, which controls the orbital period. So a, a larger, more massive object, you, you will need to orbit faster for a given altitude. So there's a trade-off. And so if you know, like from Star Trek Discovery, that you're orbiting at 800 kilometers altitude, you can figure out the mass of the planet has a function of its orbital period. And so that's what I did. Mass is something that I don't think people have too much intuition with, so I, I translated that into the radius of the planet, so the size of the planet, and looked at 
the size of the planet as a function of a few different densities. So things that are like the Earth with a density of like 5,000 kilograms per meter cubed, or things like icy satellites. And I just plotted up this relationship and threw on a, a spattering of solar system objects that came to mind. It's, it's not an exhaustive list. But um, what was interesting is there were some objects that fell on this, and they're all very tiny objects. So the Earth geostationary altitude is way too high. You have to go down things like Ceres size. So Ceres is a dwarf planet in the asteroid belt, or some moons of some of the outer planets, like Mimas is sort of in this 800 kilometer altitude range. But most solar system objects, like our own moon, the larger satellites like Titan, Europa, are all too big. And so basically the moon that they terraformed was tiny. <laughs> That's really cool. The science nitpick on that is, so the moon based on the altitude has to be tiny, but yet we see an atmosphere on it. And atmospheres generally require pretty big objects. You can get smaller objects with atmospheres, but they tend to be extremely cold. So like Pluto has an atmosphere, but it's cold. Titan has an atmosphere, but it's very cold. And even those objects are too big for this relationship. So all the things that fit this 800 kilometer altitude are too small to have atmospheres. It's interesting the details of that scene that you seized on and like thought more about. I definitely did not think as in depth about certain aspects of it, which is like usual for me. I'm like usually too busy just like staring into <laughs> Michael Burnham's beautiful eyes. But <laughs> but uh, in that scene, the thing that I seized on was like the whole question of terraforming, you know, and like what would they have to do to make this species of mushroom happy and what they would have to provide for it because terraforming a lot of the time in science fiction different authors go into different levels of detail about it but they're usually talking about how do we manufacture an atmosphere how do we manufacture arable land you know actual soil that will provide the nutrients that the crops that we need to grow will require did we bring enough nitrogen fixers oh my goodness you know, me and my roommate, my roommate is an aerospace engineer, and I, like, have a little bit of experience with, like, chemistry and biology and trying to get, quote-unquote, exotic organisms to survive in the environment that I give them in the lab, and we were just listing all of the things you would have to do to this mood, and I, like, hadn't thought at all about the size of the body that you would need. And it also seems, like, does Starfleet not have rules about planetary protection and stuff like that? Like, I guess it's a time of war and they're doing, like, extreme things, but it's like, it seems to me that whenever the discussion of terraforming comes up with real space agencies, ESA and NASA, because it is a real conversation that real scientists are having, you know, all the time about the purpose of planetary exploration, like, they would never dream, you know, of covering a planet with these spore bombs, trying to cover the entire surface with this thing without doing extensive research to begin with on, like, the moon itself. That reminded me a lot of Star Trek II. <laughs> I mean, this whole scene is very reminiscent of the Genesis device in Star Trek II, or at least mm. it's the closest that they've really gotten to an instantaneous terraform. In Star Trek II, the opening part, the boring part before Khan shows up, they're spending all this time trying to find a dead planet, and they couldn't find one, or they didn't find one in the end come to cover the ship but um <laughs> in this case in discovery stam it's just like oh i i know a moon let's go maybe they just didn't care at all because it was time to work yeah what struck me about this terraforming scene was they just needed to plop the mycelium in there and then basically shock it with em radiation 
which I guess dumps energy into the system, which tells me that there's already plenty of raw ingredients, nutrients, and enough moisture on that planetary body to support life. So this is an example, a rare example in Star Trek, of a completely habitable world that was uninhabited. And all you had to do was dump a bit of life in there, give it a little bit of energy, apparently mycelia like EM radiation a lot, and boom, the planet is now a forest of fungi. In addition to geosynchronous orbits, James also texted me this picture of the display on the USS Discovery of the moon. And James has a very keen eye. Uh, <laughs> that was an unintended pun. Never heard that one. Sorry. James, do you want to <laughs> reveal what you saw on that display? Sure. So this was on my secondary watch when I was watching it on a slightly higher definition screen than the first time. And as they were showing this, these images of this moon that they terraformed, they showed a map at some point. And that map immediately caught my eye because it was Pluto. It was a very highly altered version of the Pluto-based map derived from New Horizons. Oh my gosh, That's I so did cool. not notice. Um, <laughs> to be fair, I've been staring at the Pluto-based map like continuously for like months, <laughs> but I immediately could recognize like Sputnik Planitia and certain features. That is really cool, James. I am so impressed that you were able to spot that, even though you've been staring at Pluto for the past several months, but I definitely did not catch that at all. And to catch that in like whatever fraction of a second that that was displayed on the screen is really awesome. Well, I just got a notification on my computer console and it looks like Elise is done with her midterm, so it's time to beam her in. Welcome in! Yeah, hey, um, thanks for grabbing me there. Sorry we had to no, use yeah. the transporter. I know, yes. <laughs> I don't like using it. I, I feel dead inside now. So. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I'm more of an Enterprise era kind of gal. Just put me in a shuttlecraft. Put me in a shuttlecraft. Don't trust these newfangled devices. Well, at least we were talking about the science that was in the last two episodes of Star Trek Discovery. And so we just heard about geosynchronous orbits and yeah. about... Pluto, Pluto in yeah. Star Trek Discovery. So I've got a question for you. Oh boy. So in the final episode of Star Trek Discovery, Stamets spore jumps the Discovery into a large cave in Kronos. Yeah. So at least I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about caves and if caves actually can get that big to hide a cross-field class starship. So the kind of cave that they said they were beating into was a lava tube? I think so. Um, so the way that lava tubes usually form is when you have a lot of magma moving or lava that's on the surface quickly, enough that the outside freezes into rock because it's in contact with something cold like the air or colder rock, but the movement is fast enough that the inside of the tube can keep moving past and not get frozen into rock. And so eventually you have this tube that empties out where all the lava has flown out of it, but you have this kind of just the shell that froze as it was originally moving left behind. Um, and these can get really big, especially on the moon. The moon has huge lava tubes. On Earth, the biggest one that I mean I know of are, there's huge ones on Hawaii, but not nearly big enough to fit like even an airplane in. But there are giant caves that you could fit the Empire State Building in. 
These are different kind of caves. They're usually limestone caves. And limestone is a type of rock that you get basically after a bunch of critters die in the ocean and their bodies pile up, you get this kind of chalky rock and it dissolves really easily when water runs through it. And so if you have a lot of land that's made up of this limestone, it'll eventually or through time water will percolate through it and eat a lot of it away and make these huge caves. And this is where you get those like typical stalagmites and stalactites because as water is dripping, um, it'll build up these formations. You don't really see those in lava tubes. And I don't recall if I saw any in the cave that they beamed into. They had some blocks on, on the ground. There were some like spiky rocks. <laughs> right? Nothing, I, I was also watching. For them. <laughs> yeah. They, I didn't see anything that was very clearly a classic slab. Yeah. So as far as how big these caves can get, there's a cave called Deer Cave, I think in Borneo, that is, I think, big enough to fit the Empire State Building is what I've heard about it. It's in the Planet Earth episode about caves, and you see these people skydiving into a cave. So there's enough room for them to jump, fall, and open a parachute without serious risk of killing themselves. So these things can be really, really big. There is a cave in Mexico that you could fly a Boeing 747 through. So there are definitely caves that get big enough to hide a starship, but I don't know about lava tubes specifically, especially on something sort of an Earth-sized planet. I wonder how large Kronos is. Yeah. Because, like, that would help answer a lot of these questions in terms of, like, how realistic is it to have a planet that's entirely covered in... Mafics. Yeah. Like, <laughs> mafic rocks, you know, these big lava plains and everything. We used to think that Mars was like that. Maybe that would be close to Earth size, but it's not. There's tons of, like, more classic sedimentary structures and everything, so... There's got to be geologists or whatever. I don't know. Is geology an honorable <laughs> profession? Like, would, would the Klingons get mad at you for being a geologist? Maybe from feel like House you, of Lies. Yeah, you'd be from a House of Lies. <laughs> <laughs> lies and rocks. That's what my house does. <laughs> All right. I want to I wanna end the cave discussion. It sounds like it is somewhat realistic to have certain types of caves that are large enough to fit a starship in. Yeah. Is that right? I mean, definitely limestone caves. Yeah, limestone and cars. The yeah. lava tubes you could get if maybe Kronos is also tiny like this big Pluto. Or what if it's just like really big and really not dense? <laughs> <Yeah>. Well, <laughs> so with a limit, why the, the lunar lava tubes can get bigger for a few reasons, one of which is just that the surface gravity is lower on yeah. the moon, so there's less pressure from the overburden. On Earth, if you build a hole too big, the, the pressure from the overlying rock will just cause it to collapse. Yeah. On the moon, it's one-sixth less. It doesn't scale exactly linearly, but you can get things that can easily hold starships. So you could easily hold probably a Borg cube, really. But um, Is the moon a Borg sphere? Oh, my God. I'm going to have to vaporize you now. All right, we, we said a couple of words here that I want to make sure we define for people who aren't geologists. So we said basalt. Basalt's just like generic black lava rock that comes out of volcanoes. Your classic dark volcano. It's just, iron and magnesium. Yeah, it's very rich, rich in iron and magnesium. Okay. And it's very heavy. So we also said mafic, which... It's basically basalt, but... Basalt-like. It, it's, it's basalty in composition. It can have bigger, smaller crystals, but it's basically just full of iron and magnesium. It's heavy and dark. And then we also yeah. said karst. It's a rock made of calcium carbonate. It's what forms at the bottoms of oceans or in aquatic environments. So your karsts are going to be the dissolution features in those like limestone deposits and stuff. So yeah. yeah. Great. Okay. Cool. I like that they had some really awesome geology to think about on Kronos. 
<laughs> I want to meet a Klingon geologist. I think that'd be really funny. Be like, my parents wanted me to go to warrior school, but I just really liked rocks. Oh my god. <laughs> they, I that fanfiction. <laughs> I want to make it happen. They probably have badass rock hammers. Oh my gosh. It's like a rock hammer. Like, you know how a rock hammer has the one side that's like pointy? It's like a mace. They've got like one side that's like a nice rock hammer, but the pointy side is just like a bat lift. Or you could have one that's a, like... The, the blunt side is a mace, and the back side is just normal. you got to have two rock hammers, Berkeley. <laughs> so while the caves were somewhat realistic, the fact that there was a starbase, Starbase 1... At 100 AU! <laughs> orbiting a Earth-like planet... That looked like Earth. At 100 AU, away from Earth, <laughs> was a little bit odd. I immediately turned to you guys when we were watching this episode, and I was like, didn't they say it was 100 AU away from Earth? So, so it was very weird to see that, because we know these days what is at 100 AU away from Earth. And AU, of course, is the astronomical unit. It's the distance between the Earth and the Sun. So Jupiter is out at 5 AU, Saturn around 10, Uranus 20, Neptune 30. <laughs> and then Planet Nine is way out there. Shreyas, I was wondering if you could tell us what is actually at 100 AU in the solar system. So I think the answer that we all immediately jumped on while we were watching it was not that. <laughs> <laughs> so 100 AU is past the orbit of Pluto. It's past the orbit of a lot of the other dwarf planets that are out there like Haumea. And it's right at the edge of the Kuiper Belt, I think. I want to say it's out the outer edge of the Kuiper Belt. So just lots of, like, smaller icy bodies. Nothing of... I mean, I, I recall when we looked at it, we saw, like, quite a large, you know, thing. It's, it, Oceans of blue, clouds. Yeah. Big puffy atmosphere. Mm-hmm. This was, it looked like Earth. It, I think they meant it to be Earth, but they just didn't know what an AU was. That's my guess. I feel like if it was going to be Earth, they would have said Earth. Okay. Did they, like, maybe they terraformed something, I guess. Yeah, it's not a big game. We know that they, they have terraform guns. Yeah, they have <laughs> terraform guns. Shoot them at the planet, and <laughs> you make oceans. But, I mean, they, they'd even have to, like, bring together some... Because, like, the bodies out there are, like, so much smaller than yeah. other people. Yeah. So you'd have to have, like, little... one gun to bring a bunch of, like... <laughs> Tractor beams. ...things together and, like, another thing to terraform. What if, what if they just captured steps. Planet Nine and terraformed Planet Nine? And they, they got it off its crazy orbit. They, they made it stable. They gave it some counseling. They, they gave it some counseling. <laughs> I don't believe that Planet Nine is believed to get into 100 AU. Yeah, but they could capture it if they needed a big object versus like putting together comets. <laughs> well, so I mean, have you talked about Planet Nine on this podcast? We've mentioned it, mentioned. but not. It's probably so the Planet Nine that we're referring to is a hypothetical planet, planet that's, that's been inferred to be out in the Kuiper Belt, something that's like several Earth masses in size, based um, on the motions of other Kuiper Belt objects that move in such a way that you could imagine they're all being affected by the gravity of this large body at a certain range of distances and with a certain shape of orbit. So planet nine, we're also not expecting that to look like an Earth no. planet for reasons I'm sure James is about to get into. Yeah. <laughs> well, it might have some atmosphere, but the, the planet we saw, as Matt said, it looks like it has a 
Looks nice, like Earth. Nice big atmosphere and some water. I mean, some so I noticed some people online and some internet forums actually identified where on Earth they were showing because they actually did use Earth oh, wow. maps to create that planet. So I think it's too close. 108 is too close in for it to be Planet Nine. There are Kuiper Belt objects, and I think even one or two dwarf planets that do get in that area, and some New Horizons co-eyes corrected me when I complained about this, saying that there's nothing there. Um, <laughs> so there will be some large Kuiper Belt objects in that region, even in the year 2250, or whatever your discovery's in. The problem is that none of them look like that, with big atmospheres in particular. When you get that far out, atmospheres tend to freeze onto the planet. Also, when you're talking large Kuiper Belt objects, are we, we're talking about things smaller than Pluto. Yes. Yeah. So, small. Yeah. Maybe that's the theme of this episode. All the planets in Discovery are smaller. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, alternatively, they could have been just like they accidentally used AU or something. And this is what, I, I don't well, think they meant, yeah, it seems like a mistake that if they had a science advisor at all, it would have just been caught immediately. But they didn't just use AU. They said Starbase 1 mm -hmm. is about 100 AU from Earth. They also said that it was over one light year distant from them from the discovery at that time. So they're already within one or two light years of Earth. And then after they find that the Klingons have taken over Starbase 1, they say the Klingons are practically in Earth's backyard. So we are definitely very close to Earth, if not right above Earth, somehow. Well, the Klingons certainly took their time getting to Earth in the, in the last episode. That's true. So that part made me think that, yeah, we're not actually at Earth. <laughs> there is an Earth-like planet 100 AU from Earth in the Star Trek Discovery <laughs> oh universe. God, please, no. I think Discovery in general just kind of has some problems understanding what the solar system is, because there's a moment where they say, oh, we've cleared the, like, the soul system. And they just passed Neptune. And I'm just like, you've, you've got so much further to go. Because Neptune is by no means the end of the solar system. We were just all talking about things that's way further out than Neptune. So they're like, ah, we've cleared the solar system. They passed Neptune. They, they still be warping through the Kuiper belt in the Oort cloud. Like, I don't know. I just think they the don't. The prettiest bits. <laughs> the scenic bits. Yeah, they cleared the, they cleared the big planets. <laughs> all right. So... One major theme in Star Trek Discovery is, of course, the spore drive and all the biology that comes with it. And the way they get the spore drive to work is by injecting Lieutenant Stamets with the genetic material from the tardigrade into his bloodstream to make him able to connect to the spore drive machinery and then guide the starship through the mycelial network. So, Cecilia, you work with DNA and DNA sequencing. So I was wondering if you could give us a real brief idea of what you do in the lab, and then also tell us about horizontal gene transfer and how somebody can incorporate something else's DNA into them. Yeah, so interestingly, working with DNA is only a very recent development for me as like more of a geobiologist with a big emphasis on the geo. I originally started thinking about life in the universe as a matter of redox chemistry. You know, I wasn't as concerned with what was there as long as we could call it life and come up with ways to identify it and look for it on other planets. But coming into grad school, I've been spending a lot more time thinking about the organisms themselves, exactly what are their needs, exactly what are their metabolisms, and how likely are those things to arise in different places. So recently, I've been working with DNA because I've been running a lot of experiments in the lab trying to grow 
microbes under conditions that I think might be relevant to the subsurface of Mars. And now that I've got them growing and I've got them doing things and generating what could potentially be interesting, useful, and robust biosignatures, I now want to know, okay, what are they? You know, because <laughs> we don't know about the history of life on Mars. We're trying to understand the history of life on Mars, but the planet that we have to use for our model, the organisms we have to use for our model systems, all of them are from Earth. So my work over the last six months or so has been me trying to bring everything that I do back down to Earth in order to identify what organisms I'm working with. There's a lot of very fussy, very precise laboratory protocols to extract the DNA from the cells that are living on my rocks in the lab. So DNA is short for deoxyribonucleic acid. It's a nucleic acid, a type of organic molecule that is inside each and every one of our cells. It's inside of all cells on Earth, and it is a code. So every cell in your body contains the code that tells you how to build everything that you are. Not every cell in your body is building every single part of you every day, all the time, but the information itself is there. So if an organism like the tardigrade, the giant tardigrade, has a particular ability, that ability is either something that that tardigrade learned as an individual, or it's something that the tardigrade is endowed with because of the contents of its DNA, because of the contents of its genetic code. So earlier in the season, Star Trek Discovery, which honestly was a story arc that I really enjoyed because I enjoyed Michael Burnham, despite everyone being just so rude to her all the time, <laughs> was like still conducting her research and trying to be ethical about it and everything. And you know, she discovers in the course of her research, oh man, this tardigrade has a symbiotic relationship with the mycelium and it allows it to travel anywhere in the universe for free basically by communicating with the mycelia somehow. When I say communicating, I don't necessarily mean talking to in a sentient sense, but being able to interface with the network. They say this is something the tardigrade can do because of the genes that it has. You have a genome, which is the sum of all of the different things that you need to make you, um, and then the genome is divided into all of these individual genes that correspond to a particular trait. So brown eyes, blue eyes, curly hair, straight hair, and the ability to travel the mycelial network. <laughs> <laughs> so is it possible to take genes from one living organism and give them to another one? Right, yeah. So this is like a little bit complicated. So uh, just because you have the code to do something in your genes does not necessarily mean that your body will express that code. There's a whole nother set of cellular machinery that chooses which genes are going to get translated and turned into physical traits inside of your body and inside every part of your body. Different cells in your body are doing different things. So it's a huge part of modern medical research to figure out what controls these things. And we call that epigenetics, right? Yeah. So certainly the matter of whether or not your body is going to express a gene that someone sticks into it somehow it's going to matter where you stick that gene. If you stick a gene for traveling the mycelial network into a cell that's only responsible for creating muscle tissue, 
are you going to have the right transcriptors like present in that particular cell to start expressing this like you know interdimensional travel trait or is that cell going to ignore that part of the code there are certain organisms that are capable of expressing genes that were not originally part of their genome but were added later on in life later on in the course of their of their life cycle and lieutenant stamets is not probably not one of these organisms <laughs> um, so a lot of times it's it's very commonplace in modern biology research whether you're doing research for the purposes of human health or just pure research in general you know, if you're interested in studying how a particular gene is expressed you can take that gene and put it into what we call a plasmid so like a little free ring of DNA and inject that plasmid into something like E. coli. Usually when we hear E. coli we think of terrible gastrointestinal disease and everything but E. coli are present in all of our guts in various forms and the nice thing about them is that they replicate really really quickly and they have this ability to uptake free DNA in the form of these plasmids and incorporate it into their genome and express it with relatively little fuss as long as expressing it doesn't interfere with any of their other life functions you know that would allow them to you know metabolize and grow and everything like that so Lieutenant Stamets, um, and I think, you know, they talk about this in the show, that it's, you know, oh, it's super dangerous, we don't know what it's going to do to you, we don't even know if it's going to work, so I think they give a little bit of lip service to all of the difficulties there, but just injecting a plasmid into a human, it's probably not going to be taken up by our own DNA unless, unless, and there's all these caveats, you do it through a virus that also contains the necessary information to get your body to express its genes. But yeah, it's a fraught but not impossible. Yeah, it's it's really awesome that we have organisms today that will eat just random pieces of genetic material outside of their bodies and incorporate it into their own genomes and express them. So it seems like maybe that was Tilly's job um, <laughs> while Stamets was in the little chamber, right? She was busy working at the console, maybe making sure that all of the genetic information was being expressed in the right way, because as Cecilia said, it's a very complicated process. Yeah. Now, it makes a pretty blue sparkly hydrosphere. <laughs> <laughs> I wish we could do that and that gene therapy didn't involve quite so many, you know, nasty needles. I wish it involved more blue sparkles. Yeah. <laughs> I want to know your feelings on a couple of things that happened in the last couple of episodes. In particular, the, okay, and these things have nothing to do with science, so we're, we're done with science. Star Trek now. Plot twists and everything. Okay, I want to talk about the exits of certain characters. Because to me, the very last episode seemed a little bit anticlimactic. Mirror Giorgio just gets a little disc or something of some instructions that gives her her freedom, and she walks out of the lava tube and is gone. It's a freedom coaster. <laughs> <laughs> I, think that's a, I think that's an ID. I think that's a Federation ID. Perhaps. But I like Freedom Coaster. Can that, can that be what we call, like, passports now? Yes. Freedom, coaster. freedom you know, like, booklets. We'll see this on ThinkGeek in, like, a month for sale or something. Freedom, freedom Coaster. <laughs> <laughs> and Laurel ends up taking over the Klingon Empire with her Doomsday device. And Which I loved. Tyler, oh, I did not. Oh, oh, oh. I, okay. We'll get to it. We'll get. And Tyler 
just walks off into the sunset with Laurel, even though he's Tyler, not Voke anymore. Okay, so these three exits, you can pick anyone you want or multiple and just give me your feelings. And I know it looks like Cecilia and Elise have so feelings. I, I, I like Laurel. Like, I'm, I'm fine with her becoming like the Empress or whatever. But the, the thing that I didn't like is like, why didn't the Klingons, as soon as she was like, I have a doomsday device in my hands, just snipe her? Like, if, if some crazy man ran up on stage during, like, the United Nations was like, I have a doomsday device that will destroy the entire world if you guys don't band together and make a world government right now despite all of your differences. Some security guard would snipe or tackle. Like... How honorable would that be, though? Uh... Klingon. Yeah. Victory is the most honorable. Victory is the most honorable. Also, I'm pretty sure Klingon society is sexist, so, like... I'm pretty sure they'd be fine with, like, sniping some dirty, cheating woman who comes up with a doomsday device. Also, it's a doomsday device. You snipe that. Like, it just seemed a little silly that they'd, like, roll over and accept it when, like, she's one person holding a box that's, like, not wired to go off if she dies. So I don't know why they wouldn't just kill her. Sure. Well, plot holes aside, <laughs> I think the reason that I really liked that way of bringing everything together and wrapping up that story was... So I thought, what I thought they were trying to do um, in true Star Trek fashion was say something poignant about navigating war and politics with a society that you know very little about and might have a personal tendency to devalue, dehumanize, and be biased against, you know? So you have the Klingon Empire and Laurel's explaining to them, like, they will not stop hunting you for these reasons. Now it's a matter of like internal warfare and everything. The dream of unification is over, blah, blah, blah. And rather than going with the model of, oh, well, we'll bring them into the Federation. And, you know, because the reason that Vogue and like Laurel and Takuma and the rest of their followers like believed the things that they believed is because to them the Federation represented assimilation. And it does in some ways, you know, in some ways that I, are good and positive and helpful and in other ways that I think gloss over much of the problematic nature of trying to bring everyone under a single flag. So I think it was really poignant to me that they turned over the fate of the reunification of the Klingons and everything to a Klingon. And not just to any Klingon, but to a Klingon who is part of a disgraced cast. It wasn't like, you know, a Federation hero like swings in and changes all the Klingons' minds and they're happy being exactly the same as the rest of the Federation of Planets. It was they put the fate of this culture in the hands of someone from that culture. And I think like I liked that they made the decision and the storytelling to like to do that. Treas, your thoughts on these exits. Sure. I'll offer a thought on Mirror Giorgio leaving. Mm. Because I think from two episodes before, like when she was kind of reintroduced into the universe that we were in. And we're all like, oh, she's dead, but she's not. I kind of had this feeling in the back of my mind that they were going to, like, play her out at the end and just kind of not deal with Giorgio so much in, like, the next season. I don't know why I got that feeling, but I guess it was right. But I'm still not, like, super, super satisfied with just walking out. And also, I think, Mike, you made the point to me that in the previous episodes, in the, in the Mirrorverse, we, we were able to and allowed to sympathize with her. Whereas in the real universe, we were very, very quickly reminded that 
mirror Giorgio is not like a good person in the real world, I guess. Yeah, no, no, no. Okay, that's that's definitely fair. Just but. like a side <laughs> comment on them portraying her as like a bisexual assassin mm. badass or whatever, who's also an older Asian woman with an adopted black daughter who she like has these really fascinating conversations with about empire and duty and all of these things. Like, I like the idea that she's like out there on the edges and could be brought back for exciting plots later. If of course Michelle Yeoh is available, well, I'm just happy that they didn't kill her off. I thought they were yeah. going to kill Michelle Yeoh's yeah. character off again. I'm happy she can come back in season two and high kick some nice seven year. Someone make a gif. Someone make a gif of Michelle Yeoh high kicking a knife out of the air. Someone do that, please. Tweet it at Mike. They can't please. kill her twice. That was like the only thing in my mind. Like going through the last episode, I was like, "There's no way. There's no way they're going to kill her twice." Not on that watch. Mud killed Lorca how many times? <laughs> <laughs> that was a great episode. Speaking of characters that like are super interesting and then just kind of go away. Lorca? Mud, mud, mud. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, Mud doesn't really go away. We know he comes back. Who thought a year ago that we would all be raving about Mud? <laughs> <laughs> Not me. I but, love Mud. Well, I just yeah. think that that was the most Star Trek-y Star Trek episode in the series. Like, it's the one that you could enjoy that wasn't without watching the rest of it. Oh, I completely agree. It's yeah. more just thinking about the original series episodes with Mud's in. It's Mud. not, yeah. I just like Mud's women with the beauty pill. Like, Mud? Yeah. yeah. And it's Rain Wilson? Yeah. Remember when they tried to, oh, like, Tilly was so sad, like, at the Orion market. When they, they ate like, the whale? They, like, <laughs> tried to feed her space whale, and she was, like, so upset about it. Gormagander! Oh, oh. Just speaking of that episode. Tilly's just such that. a precious... My beautiful daughter. Yeah, my beautiful daughter. Yeah. <laughs> we got to jump to the ending now. So after they get back from Kronos, everything is saved. The war is over. Burnham gives a speech in front of what looks like the exact same room where Kirk was in the 2009 Star Trek movie trying to own up to the fact that he had cheated on the Kobayashi Maru and then comes back again later, right? But this one's in Paris, instead of San Francisco. <laughs> right, right. Um, was it? Do we know that it was the exact same room? I, I don't... Like, in terms of set? In I, terms of set. I don't think it is, but I don't know for fact. Okay. Also, it's they were at the United Federation of Planets headquarters in Discovery, whereas in 2009 they were at Starfleet headquarters, which are technically different organizations. Ah, yes. Which also, on the banner for United Federation Plants in this episode, they both had UFP, and they then had the, the French version, I think. They had <laughs> right, yeah. Um, I, I, of course, France is still... France. They still have to speak French. <laughs> so, let's talk about this speech, because it drove me to tears, seeing the redemption of Michael Burnham, and then all of the applauds for the rest of the crew, the main crew, um, even though the whole bridge crew was there, but <laughs> unacknowledged. Um, as always. As always, yeah. Um, but, yeah, I mean, Bur Burnham really came full circle here. You know, she basically learned a, a really large morality lesson over the past 15 episodes. For her, morality came second at the Binary Stars. It was all about survival. But then she learns that morality is the most important thing that we must hold ourselves to. 
And maybe encountering the mirror universe helps with that, where there is this attack first mentality that mirrored her inclinations at the binary stars. Um, and then she saw this in practice, in a civilization that basically adopted this as their way of life and came back to our universe and definitely made all the right decisions. So what are you guys' thoughts on, on Michael Burnham's journey and the speech at the end? First of all, the obvious, um, for those listening who don't know, because why would they know? Um, I am like a black woman living in the United States and it meant so much to have Michael Burnham's character at the center of Star Trek Discovery to have her journey be the thread that like connects all of these like seemingly disparate episodes and so seeing a black woman on television who's not exclusively a paragon of virtue I think is really important as well because oftentimes black female characters you know they're giving sage advice to someone else or they're taking care of someone else or that or they're just like a straight up badass you know crime boss or something like that and it meant a lot to me to have this massive nerd with a lot of wonder and curiosity about the universe who's also wrestling all the time with what good and evil mean and the best way to demonstrate how she cares about the people that she cares about and have that be like a black woman. So like, A, that's great, you know? And then in terms of the arc that her journey took I think you hit the nail on the head, like being in the mirror universe is so important for her because I kind of get the impression that Michael Burnham is the same in every universe, you know, as like this deeply intense person, intense about not just physically being a badass and being able to like kill you with her pinky, but like a badass about like how deeply she thinks about things and analyzes stuff. And there's sort of that very short conversation between Mirror Giorgio and our universe's Sarek, where they're both like bragging about their respective Michaels or whatever, and it's like, oh, my Michael is so smart, my Michael is so strong or whatever, like, seeing how well she could fit into both universes, I think, like, it made a lot of stuff click for her about, like, I care about these people very deeply, and the way to take care of them is not to protect them at all costs so much as protect the things that they believe in and that they value at all costs. So like that like resonated with me a lot. Like I spend so much of my time thinking about like what's the way to do things that are unequivocally good, you know, and put unequivocal good into the world, like with the skills that you have and in the position that you are currently in your life. It just meant so much like at this time in my life to watch Michael Burnham's character go through that, but in space, you know. <laughs> like, <laughs> As someone who has not watched Star Trek before this series and kind of viewing it as like a self-contained thing, I think in contrast to how I felt about like, for instance, Georgia or, or Laurel or any of the other characters that we talked about in the section just preceding this one, I think they close Michael's story so well. And I think this speech at the end, to me, highlighted how easy it was to like... I don't want to be sappy and say, like, fall in love with Michael throughout the whole thing, right? But I, I think it was really easy to identify with someone going through all the trials and tribulations that she goes through throughout the entire season, right? And I think that 
even not knowing, not getting, you know, some of the references, like, I didn't know, like, Mud was a person from another Star Trek season, for instance. But even not getting some of those things, it was that part of the show was so easy to, like, hook onto and ride for the whole thing and to see it all, like, closed and cleaned up so well at the end made my heart very happy. I think that her most important thing that she learned was how to be vulnerable. I think the morality thing is just starkly, starkly fluff, mostly. It's like, there's going to be a good versus evil struggle and, like, good will win. That's, that's Star Trek, that's fantasy and science fiction. But the thing that is so unique about Michael, she had to learn how to be human, and she had this whole arc where she, like, had to learn how to make herself vulnerable um, and be okay with that instead of just, like, putting up this huge badass, like, I don't speak, I'm the mutineer personality. She let herself be vulnerable, she made friends with Tilly, she fell in love with Ash, um, and then she was hurt for that, but then she became vulnerable again and took a risk and put herself in a situation that was bad again. That's what I think is so central to her development, is just this exploration of being vulnerable and how you do need other people, and that even if you are the most badass, intelligent person in the world, you still need to interface with your community and like understand others. I thought that was like something really profound that she learned. The thing that sort of bugged me about the speech is because I'm always the person who's bugged by something. I'm sorry, I'm a cynic. <laughs> I felt it was a little bit kind of contradictory for her to be standing there and talking about how like Starfleet is its morals and it's like this organization that is greater than any of its individual parts while they're sitting there pinning accolades on individuals. Starfleet seems stuck in this whole like sort of almost communist ideal of like the like the great collective and then American individualism. Like it, it's so sometimes contradictory to me. I don't know. I'm it's sorry. Productive our own society. Yeah, exactly. That creates the show. Ex yeah, exactly. Which I thought the reason that that's what sort of struck me as hypocritical was that there's basically this whole speech was about like you no, know, we are Starfleet. Like we as individuals. We're not as important as like the way we fit into this Starfleet moral framework. And then we see eight people out of the hundreds on that Starship like getting special accommodation. That, that was weird to me, but I loved Michael. All right, the very last scene, the Enterprise flashes in. What do we want to happen season two, episode one with the USS Enterprise meeting the Discovery? gets blown up and rebuilt as the proper <laughs> Obviously Spock has to Spock and Pike and maybe number number one has to be there. Would Spock be there yet? Yeah. He's, a, I was not sure of the timeline of things because I thought that at this point he would be like a teenager or something. No, but he's, he's an already adult at Starfleet on, Academy. He's he's a first officer or he's on He's the science officer, he's a science officer lieutenant on Pike's ship yeah, right around this time period. Okay, yeah. He's the only one of the main crew from the original series that we know is on the ship. The rest would be too young. Yeah. But yeah, and didn't but, they just acquire the rights to to merge with the movies? Sort of. It, it's, like, it's could Zach not, and Quinto show up? They don't have that yet, but who knows what they'll have. Well, they're fil starting to film in April now. But um, regardless of who Spock is, I mean, the fact that they brought in the Enterprise, Spock has to show up. Which would be interesting, because Sarek is there on the same ship, and you have the other child Sibling of Sarek and Michael Burns. So I think there's a lot of right story there. So in the Journey to Babel, the original series episode, Spock does mention that he hadn't spoken to his father in 18 years before that point. So that covers where we are now at Discovery. Like, if they want to honor that 
part of canon, Spock and Sarek can't talk. Can't have a conversation. Well, and again, it's going on the canon on the wrong shit. But um, <laughs> I, I need to rewatch that episode because some people on the interwebs were suggesting that that was in a official capacity hmm. in eighteen years. But who knows? He could talk to his sister. Oh my god! I, I like didn't even because I was like kind of confused about the timeline. Like I was like, oh, they're not gonna get Spock and his big sister together in the same room. But if they do, I will just be delighted because like blended family like older sister who's been through all this stuff younger brother who's been through all that stuff what do they respectively know about like their personal relationships with their parents like they're just gonna have so much to talk about and hang out and like they'll probably go on a mission together and all my dreams will come true like i only wish that they they that Amanda didn't stay back in Paris because well, she I've had also... like shopping for ridiculous dresses and parasols to do. Yeah. <laughs> what, what else? She looked like she walked out of straight out of like Alice in Wonderland, like straight. Yeah. Out of... yeah. Her life intentional. Her. Yeah, she's a wonderful person. But I mean, Amanda's always been an important part of that dynamic. Yeah. So I kind of wish she was on board, but it'll be interesting to see. Does it I, does it feel cheap to you at all that they brought in Enterprise? It feels a little cheap to me. Like, they're like, oh, we're going to fall back on old reliable. I, I don't know. Feels feels like complete fan-baiting to me. But. They were set in the time of Enterprise. They, yeah. had to, they had to do it at some point. I guess, yeah. It seems like it's going to be a real important driving plot force, the way they've introduced it, though. Or they'll just start the the first episode of Season 2, and they'll have Sarek and Burnham beaming back to Discovery, and we won't ever see the Enterprise again. It's just... The cliffhanger at the end. Oh, man. I don't know if I would be more upset about that or, like, happier about that. I'm not sure yet. I do want to see Spock-Michael re- uh, interactions, though. Spock-Michael and Tilly. Just oh, my God. All friends of... forever. <laughs> Tilly would be too much for Spock, man. That's why he's so cute. <laughs> and number one. We have number one. That's right. Which would be really cool if uh, she was on the Enterprise at this time. I'm sorry, number one. First so, officer. so in the in the cage, the, the original series, the original original series pilot, the first officer was a woman who was only named number one in that, oh. or only referred to as number one. I've never, um, I, I don't think I've ever seen that. Uh, she was played by Majel Barrett, who was, uh, what's his face to say? Gene Roddenberry. Gene Roddenberry's wife, um, and who later played like Deanna Troy's mom <gasps> and Nurse Chapel. Whoa. Um, and the computer. Wait, that makes me so happy. I didn't know that. Deanna's mom was Gene Roddenberry's wife. Who was oh. also the voice of all the computers. Wow. And is what a imprint- great week this has been. <laughs> <laughs> and it's principal, the first officer of the Enterprise that just popped up. So yes. maybe she'll be the captain. Yeah. Because we don't know who the captain's going to be. Captain of the We're Discovery. We're going to pick one up from Vulcan. Oh, I thought, it was, I thought it was Saru. I thought he no, was the he's still just a commander. He's so acting captain right now. The only one who wasn't promoted. Like, Stamets got promoted and... Tilly People got her rank restored, but not promoted. Till, yeah. Tilly is not promoted, but now she's on command track, I guess. But I think she's an ensign pip now. Oh, she but she's still wearing an operations badge. Hmm. Swiping in the command track. Remember that episode where Deanna Troy takes a test to enter the command track? Hmm. Yeah, she and also, maintains why, her counselorship. And also, why is Tilly ops when, like, it seems like she's a side ensign? <laughs> well, everyone got shuffled around on Lorca's, on Mirror Lorca's 
wild adventure ship. <laughs> Can we just make that like, the title of this series? We're Lorca's wild adventure ship. <laughs> the title needs the discovery on the hall. <laughs> Maybe Tilly just likes the color copper. So she yeah, it's a good color for her. I love I loved when Mary Georgiou just like picks up one of her like curls and she's like these are awful. She's like oh I, I, I know. It was like oh no don't hurt my baby. <laughs> All right. Well, I think it goes without saying that we're all very anxious to see season two when it's finally written, shot, and comes out. If anybody wants science advisors on Star Trek Discovery yeah. or potential actors, <laughs> I volunteer my services as anything you want. No, <laughs> seriously, though, like next time you want to use a spacey sounding unit, please just ask anyone who's like watched Cosmos even. Please just like, please. Please do that. Or just keep messing it up. Just so mess. that we have just stuff to talk about. Yeah. <laughs> Either or. Either ask us to help you, or just keep doing it wrong so that we can talk about it. Yeah. All right. How, how old is Sulu right now? Could you play Sulu? I don't know how He's old He's a BB. Sulu is. He's a small boy. <laughs> okay, you've got till April when they start shooting to get picked up. Mike's a great there we go. Sulu. He's done it before. He's got experience. You have well, the power. <laughs> we established in a previous episode that Quentin Tarantino listened. <laughs> so I looked it up. According to the Star Trek chronology by Mike and Denise Akuda, Hikaru Sulu was born in the year 2237 in San Francisco. Since season one of Discovery ends in 2257, that would make Sulu about 20 years old. He's probably at Starfleet Academy, and uh, although I'm a little older than he would be, I think with the right makeup, I'm sure I could pass for a 20-year-old. Anyway, next time Elise and I will jump back to our astrobiology-themed discussions and take you back three and a half billion years to the beginning of life on Earth. Or rather, Q will take us back in time three and a half billion years at the snap of a finger.